Let me start by saying uh, two things about uh, topics that came up about uh, last uh, evening that I didn't really touch on, but questions afterwards and discussions with people give me an opportunity to say a little bit about them. Uh, the first one is the necessity of understanding mysticism, a mystical contact with God as a gift. It's not something we do on our own. We prepare through our own efforts in cooperation with grace, but the mystical contact itself is very much a gift, and I mentioned that in passing, um, but I want to emphasize it just a little bit more uh, this morning. That is, uh, it, it's not self-help <laughs> in any way whatsoever. You can prepare, but the gift comes at God's, at God's discretion, because all the great mystics insist on this. Again, there's a famous text in the tradition that's used over and over again by authors, uh, mystical authors. I mentioned the Dionysian writings. Many of you are familiar with them, but perhaps not all. Uh, there was an anonymous monk, probably in Syria, <clears throat> sometime around the year 500 of the uh, Christian era, who wrote under the name of Dionysius of the Areopagus. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll find that Paul in chapter 17 mentions his preaching in Athens, and this Dionysius of the Areopagus came up to him and wanted to know more about Jesus. Uh, this anonymous monk wrote under the pseudonym of Dionysius and wrote a series of very, very important mystical treatises on the divine names, the celestial hierarchies, the ecclesiastical hierarchies, and the short treatise on the mystical theology, which is where we get that term um, for, for the first time. And people in the later tradition for the next more than a thousand years believed that it actually was Dionysius, Paul's buddy and friend because it kind of pretends to, to, uh, to be that. And so it acquired a kind of quasi-apostolic reputation. And it is the kind of, uh, you could describe it as a magna carta of Christian mysticism. Uh, but there's a very famous text in this uh, treatise called The Divine Names, where <clears throat> the author is reflecting on his teacher, who's somebody he calls Herotheus, Herotheus, the Holy One. Whether this was a real figure or not, we don't really know. But in that, this is Divine Names, the second book, he talks about Herotheus learning from God, not by his own efforts, but by undergoing or being subject to divine grace. He learned, the Greek is, not by mathein, which is your own efforts, think of mathematics, but by pathein, by undergoing or being subject to being given a divine grace, and that's a different form of learning, and that's, that's what mystical learning is. It's not something we do on our own, it's something we receive, it's something we undergo. <clears throat> Almost all the great theologians, <clears throat> I'm thinking of Thomas Aquinas and Bonaventure and various others who wrote about mystical uh, grace as a reception, cited that passage about Herotheus, and so that's one of the, the key, uh, key elements. The second point that came up in terms of some questions was uh, the issue of the collaborative, one might even say the uh, collective aspect of a, a mystical contact. And it is, mystical contact is something that happens to us as individuals, but I emphasize that it was not individualistic or solipsistic, and it sometimes happens within human interchange either with another person or sometimes with a collective body or the body of the church or a worshiping community. One of the most famous of all mystical accounts, many of you <coughs> excuse me, will have read this, occurs in Augustine's Confessions at the end of Book 9, where he and his mother Monica are getting ready to sail back to Africa. And they begin talking about heaven together. And they have what's a joint mystical experience, joint moment of mystical consciousness, the two of them. He says, as we were talking, our minds were raised up, raised up above the earth, raised up above the heavens, and we came to a brief touch of that supernatural world, and then came back down. That notion that, you know, it's within the conversation here of mother and son that God 
gives the gift of some kind of more direct contact with him. It's very uh, typical of other aspects of the tradition as well. Teresa of Avila, in her life, once talks about having a conversation with her, uh, one of her confessors, and says pretty much the same thing, that they, go, they got so wrapped up in their conversation about divine things that they both had a kind of joint experience. And I think this is also, and can be true collectively, both in terms of certain moments of liturgical worship, certain kinds of prayer groups, and also within a contemporary kind of context. So I'm not trying to rule that out, but, but it's something that qualifies some of the things that I talked about uh, uh, yesterday. And um, <clears throat> what I'll be doing today will be much like last night, that is, I'll talk for about 40, 45 minutes and uh, allow us enough time for some questions and observations. I have two more reflections before I, I, uh, I begin here. One is what I see myself as being able to do within this context, and that is basically to facilitate your own thinking and your own practice. Uh, I'll be, I'm talking in a certain sense in an academic way, but I'm making an invitation by laying out certain kinds of texts for you to get a deeper understanding by perhaps using these, uh, these, these texts in your own prayer life. Um, you know, there's reading for information and there's reading for meditation. And the reading for meditation, I'll say more about that this afternoon under the heading of Lexio Divina, is a slow kind of reading, a meditative reading, uh, in which we try to wring out the full information, the depths of a certain kind of text. This is often done with scripture, of course. It's often done with, with liturgical texts, but it can be done with the classic texts of the tradition, in which one really dedicates oneself to taking a particular text and reading it slowly and using it, perhaps for weeks, in trying to get out the message, the inner message that's there. And so I'll be talking about a number of different texts, and uh, obviously you can't use all of them. Some will appeal to others, some will appeal to some, and some will appeal uh, to others. But I see myself as trying to offer you some initial um, contact with some of these great classical texts that you may find attractive and say, well, I really should look at this, and maybe I will dedicate myself to using this text as a part of my own meditative practice. So, okay, so this first talk really deals with uh, contemplative insights from early Christianity. And I will look at uh, four authors briefly. Origen, Evagrius Ponticus, Evagrius from Pontus, John Cashin, and Gregory the Great as representing what I call the Christian uh, contemplative uh, tradition. But of course that contemplative prayer tradition you know, begins with Jesus the contemplative. And if we look back at the New Testament text, you'll find that uh, Jesus spent his life praying. He prays Jewish liturgical prayer, obviously, and the Last Supper in a certain sense was something like the Jewish liturgical prayer. The scripture scholars still debate over to what extent it was. He has public prayers that he teaches to others, the Lord's Prayer being the example, and the last of the talks that I'm going to give will be how the Lord's Prayer has been used and understood by so many of the great Christian writers who've meditated on what its meaning really is. But then, Jesus prayed to his Father privately, apart from others, as a key aspect of his whole life. Let me just cite a few texts. Matthew 14, after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Mark 1, uh, 35, in the morning while it was still very dark, he got up and went out to a deserted place, and there he prayed. Luke 5, 6, 16, he would withdraw to deserted places and pray. Luke 6, 12, now during these days he went up to the mountain to pray, and he spent the night in prayer to God. So there's a whole series of texts from the New Testament that talk about Jesus' prayer life 
and his dedication to it, particularly at night, by separating himself from others, by going up into the mountain, uh, and, uh, and, and the like. So contemplative prayer goes back to Jesus as the model of contemplation. Also with regard to the New Testament, there are two key texts that are central to almost every Christian mystic and spiritual writer as they meditated on what does prayer mean. The first one comes from 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 16 to 18. Paul says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, pray without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. So what does it mean to pray without ceasing? And there's a parallel text actually in Luke's gospel, it's Luke 18.1. Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. So big problem for Christian writers about prayer is how can you pray always without ceasing? So that's text number one. Text number two is also from Paul, or we'd call it Deutero-Paul today. 1 Timothy 2.1. The text goes, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings. So Paul is laying out four different kinds of prayer. And the commentators and the students of prayer will say, what, what are those four kinds of prayer? How do we understand them? Are they separate? What do they mean, etc." So you could almost write a history of Christian uh, doctrine of prayer around the interpretation of, of those passages. And then also, of course, with the model of Jesus as, as um, the prayer, the model of prayer. Now, I spoke yesterday about um, the entry of a whole series of uh, Greek terms, religious and philosophical terms, into Christian discourse, primarily in the second century of, uh, of this era. And contemplation, theoria, that's the Greek word goes, was one of the most uh, important of these. Theoria, theou, contemplation of God, contemplatio dei. What, what does that mean? And it brings over, as I mentioned last night, the whole rich tradition, the baggage from ancient philosophical discourse about the nature of contemplation, beginning with Plato especially, moving on, Aristotle talks about contemplation, the Neoplatonic and Middle Platonic philosophers talk about the nature of contemplation, and particularly contemplation directed to the highest principle, to God. And Christians absorb that kind of language and used it in terms of their own understanding of what, what contemplation means, how contemplation is to be practiced. And of course, again, a crucial figure here, as I said last night, is Clement of Alexandria. A few of the other contemporaries of Clement in the second century make use of some of this terminology, uh, but Clement is the, is the major figure for introducing terms like mystical, mysticos, and contemplation theoria into the, the Christian uh, uh, framework, into the Christian framework, and tying them to certain kinds of biblical terms, especially Matthew 5, 8, blessed are the pure of heart for they shall see God. Another one of the key biblical uh, proof texts, if you will, throughout the whole history of Christian uh, mysticism. Clement introduces all this material. Clement is not a very systematic thinker. The person who really first gives us a theology, a traditional, I mean, a, a, an organized theology in a way of Christian mysticism and contemplative wisdom is Origen, who uh, was very much influenced by Clement and others. Origen is an Alexandrian, he's born in Alexandria. He was from a Christian family. His father died a martyr, and you know the story about the young uh, Origen, or you might have read the story about the young Origen. He wanted to be martyred too, and wanted to run out and proclaim himself a Christian. His mother hid his clothes 
<laughs> so he couldn't, he couldn't be uh, martyred. But he grew up to be the catechist of the Alexandrian church, which was the official teacher. The bishop of Alexandria is a liturgical leader, but the catechist of the Alexandrian church, who was Origen, was the official teacher. And his dedication was to the study of scripture, the study of the Bible and the preaching of the Bible and commentary on the Bible. So the vast majority of his writings, he wrote very extensively. His dates are about 180 through 250, uh, 254 CE. Um, much of his work survives. A lot of his work has been lost for various reasons. Uh, I won't go into any of that uh, in detail. But when we read through his uh, many, many homilies on the scriptural text, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we read through his commentaries, when we read through his various treatises, a treatise on martyrdom, a treatise on, on the Pascha, on the, on the liturgical Feast of Easter, etc., you get a, a, a great coherent view of theology, and especially he wrote a kind of introduction to theology, the, what he called on first principles, the De Principis, which is really the first attempt at a kind of systematic uh, theological view of Christianity. So he's a protean figure and a very influential figure, and among his biblical commentaries, by far the most important is his commentary on the Song of Songs. Because the Song of Songs of all the Old Testament books is the crucial book for the history of Christian mysticism. Not the Song of Songs read on the surface, where on the surface it's a, you know, a series of love poems between uh, a, uh, a man and a woman, but read mystically on the depths into the heart where it becomes, both for Jewish mystics and for Christian mystics, the message about, first of all, the love of Christ for the church, but then the love of Christ for ind individual souls within the church. And so the Song of Songs mystically interpreted, the first great commentary we have is, is Origins here, sets it out and sets out a long tradition of commentary on the Song of Songs as crucial to what uh, we understand as the mystical uh, tradition. And of course, it's very uh, much the same in Jewish mysticism uh, as well. If you have any knowledge of the Kabbalah, for example, you'll see that the, the Jewish mystics, the great Jewish mystics, also use the Song of Songs, both for the understanding of God's relationship to Israel and for the relationship between the individual uh, Jewish mystic and, uh, and, and God. So Origen's uh, commentary on the Song of Songs is crucial. And I'll, I'll come back to a little bit more about commentaries on the Song of Songs. There are hundreds of commentaries on the Song of Songs, and many of the major mystical treatises, not only down to the year 1200, but even afterwards, are come in the form of commentaries on the Song of Songs. Bernard of Clairvaux being a good example. Teresa of Avila writes the first commentary by a woman. Um, her confessor commanded her to destroy it because women weren't supposed to comment on the Song of Songs. She very obediently did so, but had already sent out copies. <laughs> <laughs> and so the text fortunately survives to us uh, today. Um, but I'm not going to talk about Origen's commentary on the Song of Songs today. Origen wrote a treatise on prayer. Uh, somewhere around the year 233 or 34, perio case in Greek, but the treatise on uh, prayer. It's not the first Christian treatise on prayer. The, great, the North African patristic author Tertullian uh, had written a treatise on prayer about the year 200 or so. Uh, and that's really the first surviving explicit treatise on prayer in the history of Christianity. Um, it, it's more, you might say, a question of the external ways to pray and why Christians pray. Arjun's treatise on prayer is the first treatise that really tries to treat contemplative prayer in a deep way. And that's why I want to choose this as one of the texts. There are modern translations of this. It's not a long text, 40 odd pages or so. Uh, the Origin volume in the Classics of Western Spirituality has a translation of that. But it's a very powerful text. I want to say a little bit about that as the first uh, example. Um, because Arjun is important because he insists in this treatise that prayer is not just petition, 
it's also contemplation. Never rules out petitionary prayer. That's obviously very, very uh, important. But he insists that prayer is primarily contemplative practice. Uh, and he deals, again, as he must, with those key scriptural texts on prayer that I mentioned. Also, obviously, with the prayer. Whoops. <laughs> that is the hour a father taught to us by Jesus. So. Um, just a little sense of the structure of the, of the treatise, and then I want to talk about a few of the passages that I think are, are, are crucial. Um, it's uh, divided into a preface and basically three parts. Uh, the preface uh, is short, the first two chapters. Part one is really devoted to prayer in general. You know, what is prayer in the most general sense? Part two of the treatise is a commentary on the Lord's Prayer. And I'll say more about that in my last uh, talk. And then part three of the treatise deals with special directions about prayer. Uh, things like disposition and posture, the place of prayer, what way you should, where you should direct yourself, towards which direction, uh, the time of prayer, uh, etc. And uh, again, these are individual details. I won't touch on them very much. One very Nice thing he says about place, he says, concerning the place of prayer, let it be known that every place is suitable for prayer if a person prays well. <laughs> <laughs> so you can pray anywhere, but just be sure you know, that you're praying well. It doesn't matter whether, to put it in Eckhart's terms, whether you're praying in church or praying in the stable, but just be sure that your prayer is well directed. But I want to say a little bit more about what he says about prayer in general and even what he says in the preface. The preface is significant because Arjun insists that all Christian prayer is Trinitarian. I'll read a quotation. Therefore, the discussion of prayer is so great a task that it requires the Father to reveal it, the firstborn word to teach it, and the Spirit to enable us to speak rightly of so great a subject. So pr Christian prayer is always Trinitarian. We know the liturgical prayer, particularly as understood in the ancient church, was always Trinitarian as well. It's directed to the Father, through the Son, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the essence of liturgical uh, prayer. But what Origen is saying here is that all prayer, not just liturgical prayer, Eucharistic prayer, but that all prayer has a Trinitarian dimension. And it's incumbent upon Christians to recognize that if you pray as a Christian, you're praying in a Trinitarian fashion. So that's the preface. Some important aspects of his doctrine of prayer in general, these are the first, what is it, the first 16 chapters, I think. Well, chapters, chapters two, three through 16. He talks about the benefits of praying he talks about the distinctions of kinds of prayer. He talks about what we should pray for. But this is where he lays out his fundamental teaching that prayer is contemplation. Again, I'll quote. For the eyes of the mind are lifted up from earthly things and from their being filled with the impression of material things. And they are so exalted that they peer beyond the created order and arrive at the pure contemplation of God. That's the goal, the pure contemplation of God and at conversing with him reverently and suitably as he listens to us. So we may pray in different ways in terms of petition, other thanksgiving, other kinds of prayer, but the goal is always towards theoria theou, contemplation of God, contemplatio dei. And he's very much concerned with the issue of the issue raised by 1 Thessalonians 5. How can you pray all the time? How is it possible to pray uh, all the time? Uh, you know, we have lots of other things in life that we have to be uh, engaged in. And his answer is that if you have the proper attitude, your whole life is a prayer. Let me read a text again. And he prays constantly, who unites prayer with the deeds required and the right deeds with prayer. For the only way we can accept the command to pray constantly, as referring to a real possibility, 
is by saying that the entire life of the saint taken as a whole is a single great prayer. What is customarily called prayer is then a part of this prayer. Then he goes on to say prayer in the ordinary sense you know, ought to be made three times a day. And he cites also some scriptural quotations from both Old Testament and New Testament from figures like David and Peter and others, you know, praying in the morning, praying at midday, praying in the evening. Uh, and he says, so there are specific times for particular prayer, but the point about praying constantly is the whole life of the Christian, the whole life of the Christian saint should be a prayer if it is indeed conducted according to God's will and according to the proper attitude. So that's how you pray constantly. Although you also set aside particular times for prayer, and you can see the kind of beginning of, of the Christian doctrine of the times of, of prayer. Uh, and he also mentions, of course, that some places in scripture they talk about praying in the middle of the night. So you can see the kind of beginnings of the, the courses of prayer that monks later, later adopted. But his major point here is the point that we, don't, we have to see these particular acts of prayer as part of an entire life. And if we get into that mind frame, we can indeed pray constantly the way that Paul uh, is, uh, is advising us. Uh, and he also, of course, takes up the distinction of the four kinds of prayer from 1 Timothy 2 uh, and the like. So what, what you see with this relatively short treatise of origin it's a coherent doctrine of prayer related to the major scriptural texts that I've already talked about and uh, organized according to the Trinitarian core of Christian uh, life. In other places, uh, other uh, treatises as well, uh, certainly in this treatise, but also if you read about uh, prayer and other texts of, uh, of origin, you also see that his understanding of prayer is as much Christological as it is Trinitarian. That is, it's only Christ who gives us the power to really pray. I'll just cite one text here from his commentary on the Gospel of John. Christ is the guide to mystical and ineffable contemplation. Christ is the guide to mystical and ineffable contemplation. So prayer is Trinitarian. It's also Christological. Prayer can be constant if it's properly understood and practiced. So, that's origin. I'd like to turn to a second figure here, Evagrius Ponticus, Evagrius of Pontus. Get just a little biographical sketch. Um, end of the fourth century, born about 345, he dies in 399. Evagrius was a, a Byzantine a nobleman in, in Constantinople, even in the emperor's court from a very uh, important family. He served in the court and he had a crisis and a conversion. This crisis was supposed to be over a love affair with somebody who was somebody else's wife. And he realized this was not, not the thing to do. And so he changed his life. And he gave up his courtier life and abandoned that. And he went out to the desert to live with the Monacoi, the early monastics. Uh, and it was only about you know, two generations old, monasticism, uh, in uh, the Egyptian desert and in the deserts of uh, present-day Palestine. Around the year 300 or so, Christian free-form asceticism had become organized by Antony the Abbot and by Pacomius and various other monastic leaders into the early monastic uh, communities. And Evagrius then joins these communities sometime around maybe the year 370 or something uh, like that. It was difficult for him because most of the early monks were peasants who were used to a difficult life. Evagrius was from a noble family, had been used to a very soft life. So he had to get uh, acclimatized to the difficult asceticism and the life uh, in the desert. And he talks a good deal about that. In the fourth century, monasticism became what I call the kind of locus or bearer of mystical tradition. That these organizations of a particular form of life, a professional life of prayers, became the center, not the whole, but the center of Christian mystical praying and Christian mystical uh, teaching. And the monastic layer of Christian mysticism is the fundamental layer 
from the fourth century down to the 12th century and, and, and afterwards. Most of the great teachers were monastic teachers, and even the early uh, bishops who were important for the Christian uh, tradition, people like Ambrose in the West and Augustine in the West and uh, Basil and Gregory of Nyssa in the East, they were bishops, but they were also often monastic founders and sometimes lived the monastic style of life. So the history of Christian mysticism and monasticism are very closely entwined uh, from the period of around the year 400 down through 1200 and, and, and afterwards. And it still, of course, remains true today how significant monasticism is for current spirituality, mysticism, and, and the like. But Evagrius. Evagrius had been well-educated theologically, particularly in the traditions of origin. And so what uh, Evagrius brings to the monastic uh, uh, world is a new theology that enabled him to express the values of early monasticism in a theological form that was much influenced by Origen and Origen's teaching. Um, now, it's much more complicated than that. Both uh, are, there were aspects of Origen's teaching which later on became questionable. Some of them were condemned by councils, uh, and Evagrius was kind of dragged along because he was so Originist in, in his outlook. Nevertheless, Arjun was widely influential both in Eastern Christianity and in Western Christianity. And he's one of those figures who's been rediscovered today. Over the last 20 or 30 years, there's a tremendous amount of scholarship on, our, on Evagrius. There are translations of many of Evagrius's works. Uh, and uh, he's become a, a voice once again in, in the long story of Christian uh, mysticism. Evagrius talked about the soul's progress to God in terms of three basic steps. There was a practical level of ascetic living, which is what the monks are practicing here in the desert, what he called the praktike, the Greek term. It's an ascetic living in which the monk struggles against the evil inclinations in fallen humanity. We call them the seven deadly sins. Uh, for Evagrius, uh, <laughs> there are eight wrong thoughts or wrong tendencies. Logis moi is the, is the Greek term here. They're really the ancestor of the seven uh, uh, deadly sins. And he lays out treatises, ascetical treatises, in which he takes the wisdom of the monks about the necessary kind of ascetical practices you need to help overcome these, uh, these tendencies in, uh, in your life in order to reach what he calls apatheia, apatheia, which is a term that Stoic philosophers had used to describe their basic kind of indifference to everything. But Evagrius doesn't mean it that way. Evagrius means apatheia as the perfect kind of balance that you can arrive at after you've overcome most of your evil tendencies. Uh, his Disciple that we'll speak about next, Cashin talks about it as purity of heart. Purity of heart or perfect self-balance would be another way. And that's the goal of the ascetical effort, the patheia. And if you've reached a certain kind of balance, then if you've reached a certain kind of purity of heart, then you're ready to begin the contemplative stage. Contemplative knowing the theoretical stage, theoretike, and you contemplate God in nature, but then on the higher level you contemplate God theologically, theologike, that is, that's the contemplation of the Trinity, which he also talks about as pure prayer, or knowledge of the Trinity, gnosis. So you have three stages, practical asceticism, contemplation of creation as a product of God, and then direct contemplation of God, as Trinity and pure prayer. And he writes about these. Uh, one of the modes that Vagrius uses is, is, uh, can be found in a treatise that he writes on prayer, short treatise, De Oratione on Prayer. And there's an English translation of that, actually, in a Cistercian uh, Studies series by the Cistercian abbot Dom Bamberger. Some of you may be familiar with this. 
And I, I strongly recommend it. It's a, it's a very brief treatise, but it, it's hard to perhaps read at first glance because it consists of 153 short sayings. We call them aphorisms. And they're meant to be meditated upon because when you first read them over, either they seem, you know, kind of bizarre or you wonder exactly what he's trying to get at. This was a mode of teaching among the desert abbas. A young monk would go to a desert father with a problem, some difficulty in his life, with his prayer life or with his ascetical practice. And he'd ask the Abba, give me a word. <laughs> give me a word. Give me something that... And the Abba would give him a brief saying that he then was supposed to meditate upon and try to understand and use for his prayer practice and also for his ascetical practice. Really, what Evagrius is doing in the De Orazioni is giving you a series of such aphorisms on the nature of prayer. And you just don't read them over. You can read them over, but you've got to think about them. And if you think about them, pray over them, meditate on them, they begin to reveal a certain depth of teaching about the nature of prayer. Let me give you a few of these uh, aphorisms um, as kinds of uh, examples. Um, so there's 153 chapters. Some are you know, 10 or 12 lines long. Others are just a couple of lines long. Chapter 3. Prayer is a continual intercourse of the spirit with God. What state of soul is then required that the spirit thus might strain after its master without wavering, living constantly with him? So what state of soul is required for that? Well, the state of soul is apatheia, the health of soul, the perfect balance, the purity of, of heart. Another chapter, chapter 23. If you know how to practice patience, you shall ever pray with joy. So prayer and patience have to go together. Another chapter. At times, just as soon as you rise to pray, you pray well. At other times, work as you may, you achieve nothing. <laughs> but this happens so that by seeking still more intently, and then finally reaching the mark, you can possess your prize without fear of loss. Prize being pure prayer. Chapter 52. The state of prayer can be aptly described as a habitual state of imperturbable calm. That's apatheia. Again, there are many ways to translate it. Imperturbable calm, perfect balance, purity of heart, etc. It snatches to the heights of intelligible reality the spirit who loves wisdom and which is truly spiritualized by the most intense love. So you see, bringing in a whole series of patience, love, apatheia, this very rich kind of term, it's almost impossible to really translate adequately into English. One that I like, chapter 60. If you are a theologian, you truly pray. If you truly pray, you are a theologian. <laughs> that might rule out a lot of contemporary theology, but that's the meaning of theology for the, desert, for the desert fathers. That is, the theologian is one who prays well. The person who reaches theoria theologicae, con theological contemplation, direct contemplation of the Trinity, prays, prays the best. Um, another one, chapter 101. Just as bread is nourishment for the body and virtue for the soul, so is spiritual prayer nourishment for the intelligence. Intelligence. Now, intelligence here is, uh, you know, this is the Greek term nous, and it means the higher dimension of knowing. Intelligence might not be the best translation here. What Evagrius is doing here is uh, taking a text, it's 1 Thessalonians 5.23. And it's actually a text that's crucial to all early Christian understanding of humanity, all Christian anthropology. <coughs> Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, uh, 13, uh, sorry, may, may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound. Spirit and soul and body. So there are three basic components in the Pauline anthropology. There's the body, there's the soul, but higher than soul is spirit, pneuma, that is the direct opening toward, uh, toward the divine. And before the entry of Aristotelian thought in the 13th century, almost all Christian anthropology was based on humans as composed of these three 
aspects, if you will. And that's what uh, our friend uh, Vagris is saying here. Bread nourishes your body. Virtue nourishes your soul. But spiritual prayer nourishes your noose or pneuma, your higher dimension, where you have an access towards, uh, towards God. Um, the value of prayer is another one. The value of prayer is not found merely in its quantity, but especially in its quality. So you, you can read through Evagrius's little, little treatise and find, uh, I'm, I'm just citing a few of these here, citing uh, these aphorisms, that if you think about them, meditate on them, you get a deeper understanding of what he means by this progression of prayer towards the pure prayer that is identical with theological contemplation that gives you some kind of access to the, to the Trinity. Now, Vagris, as I said, was, was very influential despite uh, problems in, uh, in his reception. And perhaps the greatest influence he had was on John Cashin who's the third figure that I want to look at. We're now transitioning from the Greek East, Origin and Evagrius, to the Latin West uh, with John Cashin. And then I'm going to end with, uh, with uh, Gregory the Great. John Cashin's dates are 360 to 435, which makes him almost an exact contemporary of Augustine of, of Hippo. But what's fascinating about Cashin is that he's a kind of bridge between East and West, particularly with regard to monasticism. He was born in the East, somewhere in the Balkans, perhaps Romania or present-day Bulgaria. Uh, but in those, he was born in, into a Latin-speaking family. Uh, but he also became important in the Greek uh, Eastern Church and, of course, knew both Greek and Latin. And he, too, went out into the desert to live with the desert monks and to learn from the desert monks, both the Abbas who lived in Egypt and those who lived in present-day Syria and uh, Palestine. He spent many years there interviewing some of the most famous desert leaders, the most famous Abbas, and taking down their wisdom. Then he gradually moved west with his friends, uh, a time of great upheaval in the Eastern and Western Empire, but he moved to the western part of the empire he spent some time in Rome, but then he went to southern France, Gaul in those days, where he became a monastic founder and one of the earliest figures in the history of Western, key figures in the history of Western uh, monasticism. Founding monasteries, today, you know, southern Gaul, the area around Marseille and other kinds of places, but then also writing in Latin to convey the wisdom of the Eastern monastic tradition to these new Western monks in the communities that he was founding. And he writes two very important works. Uh, the first are called the, uh, the Conferences, Conferences, Colaciones. And these are a series of 24 talks, or we could call them interviews, that he and his friends had with famous fathers of the Egyptian and, and Syrian desert like Abba Isaac, or Abba Arsenius, or various others. And they would go and talk to them about monastic life, monastic prayer, monastic practices. And now he's recording all that material, writing it in a fairly substantial book, uh, which is probably the most important book after the rule of Benedict for Western monasticism. This is the book that all the Western monks read, along with uh, the scriptures, of course, and along with the rule of Benedict, they read Cassian's Conferences over and over and over again. We have a very good translation, by the way, now, of the whole of the conferences. There's a volume in the classic series, but that's a selection. The uh, uh, Ancient Christian Writers series that Paulus Press also does now has, has the full conferences. Uh, and these are one of the richest uh, texts for prayer and for the nature of uh, the uh, uh, contemplative life and monastic life. He also writes uh, something he calls the Institutiones, the Institutes, and that's more about monastic practices. But I want to talk more about the, uh, the conferences, and particularly the conferences that deal explicitly with prayer. One of the things about Cashin is Cashin is writing for monks. And this is very, very obvious. So he's not explicitly writing for everybody. Uh, and part of the issue in reading Cashin is, well, you know, how far would this material that's specifically written for monastic communities be applicable to everyday Christians? I think it is applicable, but 
you have to make certain adjustments and certain kinds of, uh, of transitions uh, because of the nature of the first audience that, uh, that he was involved in. So there's a kind of two-tiered notion of Christianity there, um, and it has to be interpreted. But Kashin on prayer is of great importance. And the key conferences among these 24 conferences are conference one, where he sets out the nature of the monastic life in, uh, in general, and then conferences nine and 10 of these conferences, which are interviews that he and his friends had with Abba Isaac, and are very specifically, you know, they go to Abba Isaac and they say, well, what about prayer? Tell us about prayer. What does it mean? How do you practice prayer? But let's start with a few uh, remarks on, uh, on conference one where he lays out the nature of the monastic life. This is a conference with Abba Moses. So they ask uh, Abba Moses, well, you know, what, what is the monastic life? What, what is it supposed to be like? And the Abba tells them the aim of our profession, our profession, our way of life, is the kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven. But our point of reference, our objective is purity of heart purity of heart, puritas cordis in Latin, which is really a Bagrian apatheia. And you might say purity of heart is still the best translation that one can have. And uh, Abba goes on to say, purity of heart without which it is impossible for anybody to reach the target. So the target of the aim, which is, is the kingdom of heaven, can only be reached if you practice apatheia, puritas cordis. Purity of heart is also caritas, it's perfect charity, uh, as the same first conference goes on to say. That is, everything that is done in a monastic life is done to get purity of heart and perfect charity, perfect love for God and love of neighbor. And for the monk, contemplation, he insists, is the foremost practice of the monastic life. I quote, You will note that the Lord establishes as the prime good contemplation. That is the gaze turned in the direction of the things of God. The other virtues are all practiced for the sake of this one. As we look at the uh, Luke 10, he's talking about here, the famous Mary Martha story where uh, Martha is identified with activity and Mary is identified with contemplation. He says that story tells us the Lord locates the primary good, not in activity, however praiseworthy, however abundantly fruitful, but in the truly simple and unified contemplation of himself. So for the monk, contemplation is always the key practice, however important activity may be. And there are various forms of contemplation. Direct contemplation of God, contemplation of God in nature, contemplation of God in his saints, namely in the whole, in the whole Christian uh, community. When you transit then to um, uh, conferences 9 and 10, Abba Isaac talks about prayer in a specific sense. And he talks about both the exercise of prayer in general and then the exercise of constant prayer. Constant prayer, pray ceaselessly, again to go back to the text that I've cited you. And for him you pray ceaselessly by practicing what he calls a formula of piety, a formula pietatis that we might call today a mantra. And the formula of piety that uh, Abba Isaac teaches to uh, Kashin and, and his contemporaries is taken from the Psalms. Psalm 69, to God come to my aid, Lord make haste to help me. God come to my aid, Lord make haste to help me. And uh, Kashin says that the monk should seize upon that particular term and practice it constantly as a way of always praying. Let me just um, read you a text. The same thing happens with contemplation. You need a model and you should keep it constantly before your eyes. You learn either to turn it in a salutary way over and over in your spirit as you use it and meditate on it, as you lift yourself upward to the sublime uh, height, sights. What follows now is the model to teach you, the prayer formula for which you are searching and which you should meditate on constantly. This is something which has been handed on to us by some of the oldest of the fathers. And it is something which we hand on to only a very small number of souls eager to know it. 
Keep the thought of God always in your mind. You must cling totally to this formula of piety. God, come to my help. Lord, make haste to rescue me. Psalm 69, 2. And he goes on with a long paragraph that I won't read here about, you know, almost everything is in this prayer. Cry to help for God uh, expresses humility, conveys watchfulness. It gives us a sense of our frailty, gives us an assurance of being heard, confidence and help. It's a voice filled with the ardor of love and charity for God. So that particular formula of piety, that particular mantra for uh, Cashin is fundamental to the, the monastic prayer that uh, he, he is teaching. Um, and this will lead eventually, if you practice this constantly, Cashin says, it leads you to the gift of what he calls fiery prayer. Fiery prayer, ratio ignita, which ignites your soul in love. And that's contemplative prayer, which is not something you arrive at on your own. You prepare by practicing your formula of piety. But if you practice it faithfully, God will give you the gift of what he calls oratio ignita, fiery prayer, which inflames the heart and also allows you to pray the scriptures, and Cashin points particularly at the Psalms, to pray the scriptures from within, not from the outside, to pray the uh, scriptures and especially to pray the Psalms as if you're composing them, not as if you're reading a text, but as if you're writing the text. And for Cashin, that kind of prayer, which you can reach by practicing your formula of piety, is the, highest, uh, is the highest kind of prayer. So let me just pass on to uh, my final uh, figure here, which is Gregory the Great, so we have some time for, uh, for questions and, uh, and answers. Gregory the Great, Pope Gregory the First, 540 to 604 on contemplation. Gregory has been called the Doctor Contemplationis, the doctor of contemplation. And uh, he was a high Roman official from a very aristocratic family who became a monk, founded a monastery uh, on, in Rome on the Chalian Hill uh, and lived as a monk. But then because of his connections and because of his abilities, he was kind of dragged into becoming pope because the times were critical and they needed, uh, they needed the kind of leadership that Gregory uh, could provide. So very reluctantly, because he had to abandon his monastic life of contemplation, he agrees to become a pope and writes very extensively, uh, both for monastics, huge commentary on the book of Job is written for a monastic author, but then he writes gospel homilies, which were preached in the Roman basilicas to the whole Christian community. And he writes some works, almost most of his work is, uh, is, is commentary, biblical commentary. He writes a series of... Uh, homilies on the book of Ezekiel, one of the hardest books in the Old Testament. And this is kind of for advanced Christians, you might say, uh, and not just for the, the gospel uh, homilies that he would preach to the whole community. So there's a very rich teaching on contemplation, as I call the doctor of contemplation in, in Gregory there, but Gregory never writes a treatise devoted to prayer the way that Origen and Cash and, and Evagrius did. So you have to kind of piece it together from his many writings, and that makes it somewhat more difficult. But he, too, was uh, of key importance for the history of Christian uh, monasticism and mysticism. A French scholar says, Benedict gave the Western monks their rule. Gregory gave them their mysticism. And he's one of the most widely read, of course, of later mystics, both by, uh, in the Western tradition, both of Protestants and Catholics, Protestants as well as Catholics. So I'm going to talk just very briefly about Gregory's theory of contemplation and his practice of contemplation. As I said, you have to piece this together from various places in his writings. He doesn't give definitions of contemplation or sketches of the stages of contemplation, as we find in Evagrius, I would describe Gregory as giving us a phenomenology of contemplation in the course of his writings, a description of how it affects and works in the life of the Christian, both the monastic Christian and also 
I think general belief is because Gregory insisted contemplation is for everybody, not just for the monks. Few phrases. Divine contemplation is a kind of sepulcher of the mind in which the soul is hidden. The human soul is lifted high by the engine of contemplation so that the more it gazes on things higher than itself, the more it is filled with dread. Contemplation is an engine, machina contemplationis. And why it loosens you up to dread is because the more you contemplate, the more you can also realize the awesomeness of God and the distance between us and God. So there's both a delight and a dread involved in contemplative practice when you practice this machine that you know, hauls you up on high. Uh, the simple contemplative life, he says in another text, thirsts only to behold its beginning, that is, the one who says, I am the beginning, as Jesus said in John, uh, in John 8. What Gregory does, too, is he locates contemplation within the whole history of salvation. And this is a new dimension. Particularly if you read uh, his uh, preface to the fourth book of his dialogues, he says, you know, history unfolds in, in, four, in four great stages, all of which are stages of contemplation. In the first stage, Adam was the perfect contemplative in the Garden of Eden. He had direct access to contemplating God. But after Adam's fall, we no longer have access to contemplation. We cannot contemplate. We cannot fulfill our destiny as humans. Here's a wonderful description here. The analogy he gives uh, to this is of a child being born in prison. His mother is in prison and a child is born in prison. He's never seen the light. His mother can tell him about the light, but he's never seen the light. And we're like that. We're like the child born in prison. We no longer have contemplative dimension. We can read in the scriptures that contemplation is possible. That's the second stage. No contemplation. The third stage is salvation. Christ restores the possibility of contemplation in this life. Not fully, because we're not equivalent to the way Adam was before the fall, but the contemplative restoration takes place as a preparation for the full contemplation to come in heaven. So the history of salvation in its four great chapters is the history of contemplation for, uh, for Gregory. It's storia contemplationis. Contemplation is therefore, since Christ restores us to the possibility, is always Christological. And it's also the product, it's pneumatological, that is, it is the product of the Holy Spirit acting within us. And uh, he makes that very strongly possible. Contemplation, he insists, is open to everyone. I have a text there, but I won't bother to read it here. It says, well, contemplation is given to the highest, it means the prelates, the bishops and priests, it's given also to the lowest, to everybody. And it's given to the monks, perhaps more often than others. But everyone should be a contemplative in some way, according to, uh, according to Gregory. It involves both internal understanding and love and desire. So both love and knowledge. And then he, on a close here, he has some you know, uh, reflections on what I call the practice of contemplation. Um, Contemplation for Gregory is what we might call a, a liminal situation. It's halfway between our experience in the present life and the experience in heaven. And it's always lived in the kind of polarity of the mutual interactive aspects of human life. Light and dark, sound and silence, joy and fear, satisfaction and hunger, within and without, etc. cetera. Uh, so we can never expect contemplation to be perfect. As I said, it includes both dread and delight because contemplation brings us closer to God and we recognize how, how far we still have to go, but it also brings a kind of, uh, of delight. And he's particularly important for trying to work out the rules of the relationship of action and contemplation. Fundamentally, these rules are three, and I'll, I'll close with these. these. He takes over from St. Augustine and others. They'll remain central to later Christian speculation on contemplation, that is, both Contemplation and action are good and necessary. All Christians must practice both. Contemplation in itself is higher, but thirdly, contemplation must yield to active love of neighbor in the case of the, labor's, uh, the neighbor's necessity. So those are the three fundamental rules, if you will, 
for the Christian life and how they reflect both on our activity and uh, on our contemplation. So, what I've done is very briefly introduce four key figures in the early history of contemplation. Four figures that, although they're far separated from us in, in time and in their context, I think, still can repay read, uh, you know, re careful reading and meditation to see the wisdom that they have to give us. So thank you. <laughs> Thank you.